Grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to show you a beautiful picture. It looks extra nice this kind of weather, I suppose. But I want to uh, point out two things to you about that picture. The first is that is a sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. It was taken by one of our members, Brandon Warden, uh, about a year ago when we, uh, when we were in the Holy Land. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I want to point something else out to you about that picture. Maybe you've already noticed it. You see the cross in the water? Brandon didn't know that was there when he took the picture. He just thought it was a beautiful sunrise. And then later, when he looked at the picture in the camera, he saw the cross. And once I see the cross in that picture, and and I've got a copy of it hanging in my office. We also have a, a larger copy of it hanging over the fireplace at home. And now whenever I look at that picture, what do you think the first thing is that I notice? The cross. My eyes, and I think yours now too, are drawn right to the cross, and in some ways that's all you see. And that's the way it was for Jesus. Always in the background of his life was the cross, but it was ever before him. He was always aware of its looming presence in his life. It's the cross that we want to talk about again this Lenten season. We're going to use a book to help us to focus on that cross. The name of the book is The Bible. I had you fooled, didn't I? You maybe thought the name of the book was Killing Jesus. We're going to use that book as, uh, for some background material, but make no mistake about it. What we're talking about is from the Bible. It's from God's Word. Now, I found, and the rest of our pastors also read this book, and, and found it to be pretty helpful in providing some historical background to some of the narratives uh, in the Bible. Uh, By the way, I don't think they're in yet, but we've got several copies on order for our uh, bookstore downstairs, so you'll be able to purchase those if if you don't already own one, but you can get them anywhere. uh, uh, It was a number one bestseller, and so uh, you can get it anywhere, um, including our bookstore, before too long. But this book does is point us to the book, the Bible, which always points us back to the cross. That's what we want to consider today. Now, beginning next Wednesday, we're going to devote each service to one of the days in Holy Week, and and the historical background to each of those days, but not just the historical background, that's where the book Killing Jesus leaves off. And that's why you especially need the book, the Bible, to give us the spiritual perspective on all of that. Today, though, we want to look at the, the idea of killing Jesus, not yet. We're going to look at two places in the Bible where an attempt was made on Jesus' life, but the Lord said, not yet. 
It's not yet time to die. The first one, I think, is a, is a very familiar one. It's uh, the first epiphany when the wise men, the magi, traveled to Jerusalem from the east and they asked Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? And the answer that he got from his Bible scholars was in Bethlehem. And Herod sends the uh, magi on their way to Bethlehem with the instructions to come back to him and tell him where the, where the baby is. And here's where the story picks up. Well, then they, I'm sorry, then they go to Bethlehem and they worship Jesus. And here's where the story picks up. When they had gone, that is the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And God said, not yet. Jesus will not be killed by Herod. Jesus will not be killed yet. Now, some interesting things to note about Herod. When you read the New Testament, you see his name beginning in Matthew and, and all the way into Acts. And if you didn't have the history, you might think it's the same Herod. It's just the same name. It's Herod and his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. The one we're talking about tonight was the first one known in history as Herod the Great, not because he was a great man, he was a horrible human being, but because of some of the great building projects that, uh, that he oversaw during his 33-year reign. Having been appointed king of the Jews by the Romans. That's the title that he went by, king of the Jews. What was the title that the Magi gave to the one for whom they were searching? Same thing, the king of the Jews. Herod could not stand a rival. He had murdered many people before he got around to murdering those babies in Bethlehem. Anyone who had any idea of ascending to the throne, Herod got rid of, including three of his own sons, as well as one of his wives, and his mother-in-law, and uh, many, many others outside of the family. In fact, in fact, it's said that Caesar Augustus, we remember him from the Christmas story, that Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying it would be better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons, that that could be a safer thing to be. Herod didn't have a conscience, but if he, if he would have, he would have salved his conscience about the murder of these babies by saying he was doing it not only to protect himself and his throne, but also to protect the citizens of Judea, which was the Roman province. Because the Romans would not abide somebody ascending to the throne on their own. They were in charge. They would have had to place somebody like they did Herod on the throne. And so not only was he protecting himself in his mind, he was also protecting his people from, uh, the, uh, from the terrible Roman army. One other thing to note about Herod, I want to show you uh, uh, a model of the temple in Jerusalem. In, in, in modern day Jerusalem there's a very large area uh, with a model of, of the city of Jerusalem as it was at the time of Jesus. And in the heart of that is the temple 
And now I want you to notice where that arrow is pointing. The temple is in the foreground. The arrow is pointing to Herod's fortress. Now the irony there is that Herod could have looked out of the window and possibly seen Jesus as a baby with Mary and Joseph because they came to the temple when Jesus was 40 days old for Jesus to be presented at the temple as the firstborn. This was the custom of the day. Now some have suggested that maybe he was even at the temple earlier than that. Uh, living in Bethlehem only six miles from Jerusalem, it wasn't a long or difficult walk at all. Some have suggested that when he was circumcised and named at eight days, maybe that also took place at the temple. We don't know that. We do know he was there when he was 40 days old, before Herod ever knew who he was, before Herod ever felt threatened by this baby. It was later on, we don't know how much later on, when Herod uh, discovered about Jesus. Well, that's the history. What's the, uh, the spiritual perspective on that? What, why did God say not yet when Herod sent those soldiers to Bethlehem to kill Jesus? Wouldn't that have been easier? It would have been much less painful for Jesus. He wouldn't have had to suffer at all during his life. It, it, it just could have all been over very quickly. The reason for that is given to us many places in the New Testament. And that is that Jesus came not just to die. He came also to live. To live the life that God had created us to live. To live the sinless, perfect life. And to be our substitute in that way, not only substituting for us in the death that he died, but also substituting for us in the life that we were to live and that God now credits to us. That was the main reason for the why not. There were some other reasons as well. Jesus had a lot to do in his ministry, didn't he? To preach and to teach, to help and to heal. He said he, was, he had come to seek and to save the lost. And he came to recruit some close disciples that, that he could train then to carry on the ministry after he went back to heaven. They were the ones who founded the church and who helped by God's spirit and power to make the church grow. When Jesus was a baby, an attempt was made to kill him, and God said, not yet. When he was a grown man, there was another attempt on his life. I'd like to ask you to, to turn in, in your pew Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 4. This is a little longer, little longer narrative and maybe not quite as familiar. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. We read there, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Galilee is in the northern part of the Holy Land, and, and that's where Jesus was raised, in the town of Nazareth. We know that, don't we? 
He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. I want you to, to look at that word synagogue. We don't really find it in the Old Testament. It grew up in the, in, the, in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the synagogues became a very important, even central part of the religious and community life in Israel at the time of Jesus. We know that there were about 400 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem alone. The, the, the temple was there for the formal worship, for the sacrifices, but the synagogues were everywhere where it was, it was men, where men would gather every Lord's Day, every Sabbath, to worship. Synagogue, this is in the modern city of Nazareth, but in that city uh, there's several acres that are set aside and they've developed that for uh, for the, the, the village of Nazareth as it would have most likely appeared at the time of Jesus. And this is an exterior shot of that uh, synagogue that is there. It's a little bit difficult to gauge the size from that, but when you look at this picture, I think it's pretty easy to see these were small places. And the practice there in the synagogue was they didn't have clergy. They didn't have a highly ordered liturgy like they would have had in the temple. They had some things that they always did. They would begin the service with what we call the Shema um, from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Jesus quoted that, didn't he? But they said that all the time. And they would have chanted some psalms and they would have had some readings together. They didn't always know who was going to do the reading or who was going to do some teaching when they gathered in the synagogue. So if there was uh, somebody of uh, some celebrity status, um, not likely in a little town like Nazareth, or a traveling a guest, again, not so likely in a little town like Nazareth, they would invite him to read. Well, Jesus now was both of those. He was a celebrity, even in his hometown, and was a guest because he wasn't always there. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He went to the place where he had worshipped week after week after week when he was growing up, where he had worshipped with the individuals who were there now with him. They knew him very well, and he knew each one of them. But now something was different. He was a bit of a celebrity. Word about his miracles had, uh, had come to his hometown. And so they invited him to read. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And he sat down to teach. That's what they did. If, if we followed that custom, there'd be a chair right up here in the middle, and I'd be sitting and talking to you now. So he sat down, not because he was done reading, not because he was done reading and had nothing to say, but because he was getting ready to explain these scriptures. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and began by saying to them, and think what he said. Listen to these words. 
Think how they would have been received by these people who had known him from little on. Today, this scripture, this scripture which talked about the anointed one, which talked about the Messiah, the Christ. Today, Jesus says to these men of Nazareth, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now the next words, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. I think what's happening there is Luke is describing to us they were trying to be polite. They were saying some nice things about Jesus, but I don't think they meant them at all because what do they say next? Isn't this Joseph's son? You remember how small the synagogue was? They knew that Jesus would hear that question. What were they doing? They were putting him in his place. We know who you are. We grew up with you. We know your mother, we know your father, we know you're a carpenter. Don't be telling us this stuff about being the Messiah. Then Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, which is another city in Galilee. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Gentiles. They knew what Jesus was saying. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Once again said, killing Jesus? Not yet. Why not? He was no longer a baby. He had already been ministering. He was an adult. He had been uh, speaking parables and, and performing miracles. And still God said, not yet. I think the main reason for this, well, he still had probably a couple more years of ministry yet to go, but the main reason had to do with the manner in which Jesus would die. God had determined both the time and the manner of Jesus' death, and throwing, being thrown off the cliff was not the manner. Jesus had to die at the hands of the Gentiles, of the Gentile Romans, because he had to die on the cross. Why that? St. Paul answers that for us in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, sometimes in our hymns, sometimes in our liturgy, sometimes in our prayers, we talk about the tree of the cross. And that's not just because it's made out of wood. It's because it's a reminder to us that in the Garden of Eden, on a tree, the tree of the, of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, life for mankind was lost. But also on another tree, the tree of the cross, life for mankind was purchased again. And it was purchased by Jesus becoming a curse on the tree 
of the cross. What does it mean to be cursed? It means to be separated from God. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. You know the words. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the death Jesus was to die. That was the death Jesus needed to die for us and for our salvation. That's the death that we are going to examine and the events leading up to it in greater detail each Wednesday during our Lenten season. We look forward to that journey together. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.